0: Hey, Cracked fans. With the summer months just around the corner, we know all of you are beginning to think about how you can best maximize your chances to improve your game with the warm weather. Well, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are so excited to tell all of you about the 254 tennis camp happening this summer at Baylor University. Now, over the course of three weeks in June, starting June 12th through the 16th and ending June 26th through the 30th, you'll have the opportunity to learn from 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 some of the best coaches in the business in an all-encompassing tennis experience. You'll have the opportunity to improve each and every part of your game, whether that be on the singles court, whether that be on the doubles court, through drilling, through point play, match play as well. You'll also, of course, receive a free t-shirt for participating in the camp, but also have the chance to see yourself broadcasted. As our Crack Rackets team will be providing coverage of the final day each week at this two-five-four tennis camp. Again, you'll have the opportunity to learn from some of the best coaches in the business. I promise, Coach Michael Woodson and the Baylor team going to make it an extraordinarily enjoyable time. How can you get signed up today? Well, you can learn more information by visiting the Baylor website by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp again that's baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp to sign up today now this camp open to any and all entrants but limited only by age number grade level and or gender again you can learn more about this camp by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp today don't miss out folks gonna be three very exciting fun weeks of tennis down at baylor university be sure To sign up for the 254 tennis camp happening at Baylor today. Welcome to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, May 17th. On today's show, we continue our pre-tournament coverage of the 2022 French Open, the year's second Grand Slam, less than a week away. And of course, we don't yet have the draws, but with over two months of clay court action now officially in the books, we feel as though we can, at least to the best of our abilities, set the scene for the year's second Grand Slam. And of of course, what we do every time there's a Grand Slam here at Crack Rackets is try to break it down from every angle. Talk about the top contenders on the men's and women's side. Break down the dark horses. Focus on the Americans like we like to do here at CR. Try to break it down again from every angle so that all of you listeners have all of the information can remain the most well-informed fans in the business. On today's show in particular, we're going to focus on the WTA dark horses and a question we will ponder on today's show. Is everyone outside of Iga Świątek considered a dark horse to win this event? Of course, Iga has won 28 consecutive matches, and we talked about that at the start of yesterday's show. How far ahead of the field is she coming into this event? That's a question we want to ponder today. And then we want to look beyond Iga. If it's not her, who else is even capable of winning this Grand Slam? Who else is capable of making a deep run? Will there be one of those surprise quarterfinals semi-finalists like there always seem to be. I can point back to last season's French Open. Tomorrow, Zidanecic came out of seemingly nowhere. I guess if you watched the Bogota final a couple of months earlier, you thought, okay, maybe that's a second round, third round appearance for Zidanecic. I don't think any of us saw her reaching the semi So we saw it happen last year. We saw Krejcikova win a title the week before the French Open and then ride that momentum all the way to the French Open title. Simply put, funky things happen in Paris on the women's side. We want to try to prepare you for all of that funk. And as always, if we're going to try and do that, we better have some help along the way. And I will acknowledge it's been a long time since we've had this guest on the podcast. You may not recognize his voice. Nevertheless, I'm going to hope you listeners will trust my judgment in bringing him back on once again today. He's a man, of course, you know best as an editorial producer over at tennis.com a man who essentially co-hosts this mini break podcast at this point it is returning champion and our friend david kane david welcome back to the show less than 24 hours since we last spoke i missed you how are you doing today
1: I missed you too, Alex. I'm back, refreshed and ready for Iga Svantec to
0: kick my ass. Yeah, it's been a full, what, 12, 24 hours since we last spoke about how much better Iga might be than everyone else. And yet, of course, that is going to be a conversation we talk about today. And you know, again, before we get into any of that, I do want to give a shout out to our friends over at Tennis Point, who of course support this podcast day in, day out, make it possible for us to offer updates to all of you on everything happening across levels in the tennis world. We're Talking all things NCAA quarterfinals and onward over on the Great Shot podcast feed. We'll have live episodes here on Tuesday on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. 7 p.m. we're doing the men. 9 p.m. we're doing the women. You're going to be able to hear the men's pod on Wednesday on the Great Shot podcast feed. The women's pod Thursday. Of course, those two quarterfinal rounds. The men play on Thursday. The women play on Friday. Hopefully that leaves you enough time to prepare yourself for all of that action. I will also throw out there since it's now public. Very excited to be able to say I will be on the broadcast for the NCAA team event. Broadcast coverage begins for the semifinal rounds onward. It's going to be myself, Mike Cation, and a team of others as we try to make the most of the home stretch of the 2022 college tennis season. Again, all that focus going to be over on the Great Shot podcast feed. You can hear from all the coaches remaining in the draw over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed as well. I spoke with all of them last week as part of our preview of the Sweet 16, but that is not going to be the focus here today. And of course, as I mentioned, I, I I got midway through and I didn't finish the Tennis Point ad, so leave it all in, West Off But of course, tennis-point.com, the promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest equipment. With that in mind, David, we're not going to break down the four events we have happening this week. Two on the men's side, two on the women's side. You made fun of me. I would point out my men's dark course, Pedro Martinez' first-round loss for him in three sets. Now I will say that player went on to make the quarterfinals, so maybe that tells us more about his opponent than anything else. Nevertheless, also, what would that match have looked like? Three out of five. That's a. We don't have to. We don't have to rehash. It's the only argument. Pedro
1: Martinez reference allowed on this podcast. OK, right
0: that's now. fair. That um, We don't have to rehash that argument Store here spot. today. But I did refer to the fact you remember last year, of course, Barbara Krachikova, what was it, in Parma or wherever it was that she ultimately I believe it was wins, Strasbourg. Strasbourg, yes. Thank you, Strasbourg. Was it Coco Gauff who won in Parma? That week, because someone won in Parma, or maybe it was Sebastian Corda. The
1: point is, Sebi- yeah, yeah, there definitely was definitely a- Sebby Corda in Parma. i It sounds right that, yeah. that Kokegov won the final, but you'd have to fact check me on Plus, that. Plus,
0: Sebby Corda has the face of someone who's cheesy, so we'll go with Parma for him. But to that point, West, I've put in a drum roll, please. Uh, to that <laughs> point, I, you know, I think the week before Grand Slams it's always an interesting time for us tennis fans. How seriously should we take the results that we see unfold this week? Because certainly Krachikova feels more like an exception than the rule. I would go back to last season, 2021's Australian Open, where obviously that was the start of, you know, bubble play in Australia. Yannick Sinner wins that title literally the day before he plays his Australian Open first round match. And he ends up losing, I think it was in five sets to Denis Shapovalov. And obviously that was a brutal draw. But I think even last Last year after winning his title the week before, Sebastian Corda ended up losing first round of the French Opener early on in the tournament. Obviously on the men's side, Novak Djokovic won that Belgrade two title the week before the French Open last year. My question to you, how seriously do you take these results? is it this particularly when you look at a dark horse conversation right because the players typically playing this week are either a players who would not otherwise have the opportunity to play a WTA level draw or b players who are trying to get more match play whether it be due to struggles they've had of late on court struggles that be off the court with injuries how seriously do you think we should take this week's results I
1: think it depends on the Grand Slam, when you're looking at week before tournaments. On one hand, I think the australian open wimbledon for example even the u.s open sometimes can be a bit instructive in terms of who is going to take that momentum into their respective slam although conversely you might want to have a conversation with aslan karatsev who won sydney in january and looked primed to defend at least the bulk of his semifinal points in australia and then loses quite early uh and has not been quite the same since losing to adrian manorino in that in that third round i believe but i think the french open historically barbara Kretchkova aside, has not been necessarily the most illustrative in terms of predicting, at least on the women's side, um, potential breakout runs. It tends to be sort of that last, last gasp for a lot of players who want to get those clay court points. I feel like the most serious contenders for Roland Garros in the past have tended to be ones who skip uh, that last week before Roland Garros, because I just think at that point they're already gassed from playing Madrid, from playing Rome, and they don't usually come in from that last week in... Having played just a bunch of matches, I think clay is such a physical surface that you don't necessarily want to be that uh, tired from having played the week before Roland Garros. So in that sense, I don't typically look at this week and really think, oh, this is we're looking at a potential future quarterfinalist, maybe strong run to a third, fourth round. But it's not necessarily going to be something that I think will be a thing we look back on towards the end of the tournament.
0: Can we look through the draws quickly as here you on know, the mini break we try to recap all the action happening across levels and there is obviously French Open qualifying happening this week. That's something we're going to discuss later on in the week as some of those rounds come to a close. But just so, you know, listeners are aware, we're not ignoring what's happening this week, but just some players, you know, again, let's play a game of good decision, bad decision. How relevant is this player's choice to go play the week before? How helpful may it be or indicative of their form? Heading into Roland Garros will start with Strasbourg. I mean someone like Karolina Pliskova who gets a 4-2 victory over Marta Kostjuk in the first round of action. You look for Pliskova this season. Obviously, she just hasn't played that many matches and was dealing with an injury at the start of the year, but you look for Karolina Pliskova coming into this week. I believe she's 2 in 6. Overall on the year, and you know, for her, Stuttgart gets a win over Kvitova before losing to Samsonova. Losses in her past two events to Buskova round one that's probably the one you have the most trouble with. Then Teichman, three sets in Rome. Teichman was playing particularly well. I don't think that's a bad loss in a vacuum. I think it's a very wise decision for Carolina Pliskova to go play this week, go get some confidence. And do I think she can win the French Open? Of course, I do not do i think by playing this week gaining some confidence with the seed that she'll be she's still number 8 in the world right now does that mean all the world to her moving forward and to just get some calluses on the body i do think it's a valuable choice and i do think that's something to be aware it's something to keep an eye on
1: Pliskova needs matches i mean there's yeah. nothing there's no two ways about it i mean i think his uh, colloquially the fans on tennis twitter called her Plisko bot i think you know she's <laughs> been she's there's been a lot of rust on the the, the old prototype in the last couple of months and she hasn't been able to get the momentum going it looked like if you would think if it was going to happen anywhere it would happen in rome where she's historically had so much success winning the title making the last two finals takes the early loss to, to your sentimental favorite, Jill Teichman. And I think it's looking for matches. And I don't think she's someone necessarily bowled over by ranking. I mean, she fell out of the top 10 right before Wimbledon then pops right back in after making the final. So I don't think she's necessarily worried about her prospects for the season at this point just yet, but she is someone who based on her success in Rome I've always thought she'd be more successful at Roland Garros as a former semi-finalist from 2017. Maybe looking back on that match against Simona Halep in the semis as a potential sliding doors moment, could she have played Elena Ostapenko better in that final than Simona Halep? So I think, based on the Rome, Roland Garros, Strasbourg similarities, I think this is a, a great situation for Plushka. But Again, do you think? Do I think that she can take this momentum all the way to the title? Probably not. But I think if she can come out of this week with a title, even a runner up finish, just more matches for her. And I think it sets her up in good stead for the hard court season where I imagine she'd be looking to peak.
0: Yeah, I agree with that argument. In this instance, you can speak for both me. Do you and I feel this way? We both. I imagine many listeners do as well. By the way, and it's going to bother me because I talked to my older brother last night, and he always has that ability to just stick the knife in in a way that makes me remember. I do apologize if I sound a bit nasally. Uh, you know, coming off of a little bit of a cold. Good news is it's gone now, and now I'm just in that all oh, the phlegm is being coughed up phase. There's some imagery for all of you listeners at home, but. But just so you know, do apologize for that fact. I feel fine. And so we play on. And with that in mind, and I'm so happy because there's maybe three people in the world I can ask this question to who will have an answer. Where are we with Elisa Mertens? Like, is it just third round? Like, is that just it? Like, we're like, all right, we'll see her in the third round. And to expect anything more is just too extreme at this point because she was part of that group. And I always point to the four, Sakari, Kanteve, Vakic, and her. They all felt primed to pop, or it felt like the four of them were all hovering with their consistency, and Mertens may have even been the most consistent of the bunch. Obviously, Sakari, Kantave pop. Vekic has had a various injury issues, and we just haven't seen much of her or her best over these last 15 months. I mean, Mertens has held status quo. The problem is the rest of the field has caught up. Where are you with Elisa Mertens, who is playing this week, by the way, in Strasbourg, still alive right now, the number four seed, going to face Friedson, uh in her round of 16 match?
1: God, talk about a player that I have not thought about this year, really at all. And I yeah. noticed that she has been playing doubles with Veronica Kudermetova, and it's kind of an appropriate partnership, in my opinion, because <laughs> Mertens and Kudermetova are very much – Similar archetypes on the WTA Tour players who have all the challenge in the world, seemingly fairly natural athletes, some good ball striking ability.
0: And I know you didn't mean it this way, but talk about a demotion to go from Sabalenka to Kudermatova, where you're just like, I was on this tier and now I'm on this tier.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, I feel, I'm I'm still waiting for the reunion of Elena Vesnina and Veronica Kutamedev. I'm still smarting <laughs> from that missed out bronze medal at the Rio Olympics and even worse, the, the Wimbledon final where they had every chance in the world to beat Mertens and Shea Sue in that final. Never forget. But I think they're just two players who lack that signature result. I was certainly there for one of her signature results, one of her very few. In fact, when she beat Simona Halep to win that title in Doha, just very few Plat- very few peaks and mostly pat- plateaus for Mertens. And even that plateau has gotten lower for her, comes into this French open as a 31 seed. We're used to seeing her being at 12, 16, you know, challenging opponent in the third, fourth round for these Grand Slam uh, contenders, you know, going to be an early uh, fixture for one of them. One of the top ones, in fact, uh, once the draw comes out, but just someone who has not been a factor this year in singles. And she's always been a dangerous opponent for top players, maybe less so the case at grand slams just it seems to have a ceiling for all of her talent and just you can't afford to have a ceiling on the wta tour on a, in a situation where everybody in an environment i should say where everybody has a chance to potentially win a grand slam title she has definitively said with her game and with her results i'm not one of those players and so in in a field where we're looking for as many as possible she's not someone that can be on that i can afford to put on my personal front burner
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, you look at that draw right now over uh, this week in Strasbourg. Right now, Pliskova, if she wins her second-round match against Perra, would play Zanevska. Mertens would play the winner of Yuvan and uh, Berberovic. I want to see a mertens Blisk of a match. I want to see both of them get that match under their belts heading into Paris. And, you know, again, before you can even maybe consider them in this dark horse conversation, we're going to have. And, you know, again, at, on the margin, some of the other players, Sasnovich, if she can get a win over a Kerber, she's always interesting this time of year. And, you know, someone like a Fiona Farrow, who physically I think can do a lot of different things. She's got an interesting matchup versus Golubik here, second round in Strasbourg. Those players are interesting. The big name I want to circle, and we can just have this conversation now because, of course, there's an event going on in Morocco this week as well. And I think I alluded to it yesterday, and you were laughing at me. Garbine Muguruza, 3-2 victory in her first-round match. She plays former, I believe, surprise quarterfinalist in Trevisan uh, in her second round. for surprise quarterfinalist at the French Open, I want to say, from 2020. Uh, Muguruza playing her in her second round. I mean, look, it's been a year from hell for Garbine Muguruza after a year that you just feel like every big opportunity for Muguruza broke against her last season at the Slam. Certainly if you play 2021 10 times, Garbine Muguruza is ending up with at least one Slam title in one of those 10 seasons. I mean, this year, she has not been good by any standard you want to measure. You look for Garbine Muguruza, 6-7 and seven overall coming into the week on the year. You look at her from a math perspective, the hold percentage, 70.1. It's below her career average The break per- by 2%. The break percentage, 32.1, 5.5% percent below her career average. Now, I know there have been some injuries. There's been some starting and stopping for her as well. She just has not. I mean, she hasn't found any rhythm in any tournament she's played. This is, you know, she's won two matches in just one event this season. And even then, that was in Doha, where her 2-2 two and two loss in the quarters to Ostapenko. Stark contrast to her performance in the Middle East last season. I mean, I, I again, I think Garbine needs this. I always say I have my Muguruza theory is the moment you count her out, that's exactly when she goes on one of those runs. In terms of the intangible, unmeasurable things, this feels like one of those moments, David, where, like, no one's talking about her. No one's thinking about her. That's when she does the stupid shit. Like, this feels like one of those Roland Garros where the stupid shit could happen.
1: I mean, I personally have been counting her out since January. So by that logic, she should have won the Middle East swing and won the Sunshine <laughs> double based on how little confidence I had in Garbini Muguruza. No disrespect to her Yeah, but the problem her, her is, game. I didn't.
0: I still had confidence in her. So it has to be a mutual. Like everyone has to be doubting, and I think now everyone is.
1: The mu- mutual demotivation. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I mean, I think we look back. I think it's a situation. I think it's a situation where we look back on the end of Garbini-Muguruza's 2021, and it really does obfuscate, in my opinion, the the season that she ended up having. It was really one where she white-knuckled it to get into Guadalajara for the WTA finals, and once there, was very close to not making the semifinals out of her round-robin group, was on the verge of losing once again to Barbara Krejkova in the round-robin group, somehow turns that around and kind of just catches you know, a vein of form running into some tired opponents in Paola Bedosa and Annette Kantavite, you know, gets two wins over Annette to win that WTA finals. And I think people were very high on Muguruza because again, you watch her and you look at her and you see her game and just the way that she's built physically, she's got the the great coach in Conchita Martinez. You feel like after all those years with maybe not the ideal coaching situation, she's got someone behind her who believes in her, who helps her focus and be relaxed. And yet there always seems to be, you know, a, a hole popping in the dam of uh, of Garbini Muguruza's career and and gameplay. And it's been more of the same this year. I mean, I could see her potentially running the table. Uh, this week in the Grand Prix de S.A.R. La, la Princesse uh, la la Meriem uh, in Chaba, which is a tournament that I have loved spelling the name of in my W.T. raps mm-hmm. over the years. But at the same time, she could win this title. She could lose to uh, Trevisan. She could lose to Clara Burel. Uh, she could lose to Nuria Parizas-Diaz. She could lose to Tomi Anovich in the final. I mean, this, the, it's any and all... Uh, permutations are possible right now for McGruzan. Even if she were to win this title, there's no saying that she would be able to take this momentum through Roland Garros. I feel like she's the kind of player who needs that that important win at the tournament, you know, at the slam itself. I don't know if she's someone who can necessarily keep the good vibes going from Rabat to Roland Garros, but, you know, she's proven me wrong before. So I, maybe I won't go too hard on her.
0: Career-high first serve percentage, and yet she's winning only 65.2% of her first serves. That's a percent below her career average, 45.5% of her second serves, lowest numbers since, I believe, the 2012 season, which is when she was first breaking through. On like when she was season.
1: Muguruza Blanco.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean – that's because she's lost confidence in it. She's going for less on that first serve because when she tries to go big, tries to set up the big plus one ground strokes, it's just not working for her. And that lack of rhythm has leaked into everything else she does. She can't swing confidently from the baseline as an aggressive returner when she's not having any rhythm holding serve either. And, you know, she's struggling on the return of serve, just foundationally putting returns in play that number below her career average as well by, uh, I believe, 4% right now. I mean, again, it's, it's been a tough year for Garbine Muguruza on court, and Corden. there have been injury issues at the same time, and I know this is a running bit here on the Mini Break podcast, and we, I probably say this to you every third podcast we do. Prior to Miami last season, and really prior to her getting hurt in Charleston, Garbine Muguruza was the best player in the world, and you can't convince me otherwise. She had the match points on Naomi Osaka at the Australian Open. Her dominant run through the Middle East— She was exceptional at that point of the year, and then she gets hurt in Charleston, and it's start and stop the rest of the way. And I mean, look, you look for Garbine Muguruza, you know, she turns 29 in October of this year. I'm not saying it's the end of the prime, because obviously, as we've learned in the modern era, primes can be extended not only into your early 30s, but into your mid-30s, and for the freaks, you can seemingly play forever, The window is closing, though, for Garbine Muguruza, for her to be the dominant player at the peak of her powers compared to the rest of the field, because everyone's getting older, everyone's catching up, whether it be obviously, you know, the Initially, Barty, Osaka generation of players, Sabalenka's, Conteves, Sakaris of the world. Now you have the players, even a generation younger than them, in the Bedosas and the Schwienteks, obviously, and Rescues, Kennens of the world. I know that Kennon thing's a different conversation, but you get what I'm saying in the context. The end of the window is coming up for Muguruza. Like in terms of, and I mean, look, she's won plenty of Grand Slam titles, and I think. I think she'll be a Hall of Famer. I mean, I know she, you know, has gotten to world number one. She's won multiple Grand Slam titles. I think that is already secured. But that push to, you know, five, six, seven slams that felt very feasible early on in her career, that window has, is slowly, if not by the end of this year, might be shut.
1: I don't know if I ever saw her as a seven, eight time major champion. I certainly maybe saw her more as a four or five time well, grand slam that, champion. I and maybe maybe think five
0: a... numbers the real one, right? Because of the surface versatility.
1: Absolutely. But I think, again, you go back to that often vaunted start of her 2021 season. I mean, that loss to Osaka for me is why Osaka has doubled the grand slams of Garbini Maguruza. And, and as great as it was to see her peak or play some really consistent tennis for the Middle East swing. That tends to be a point in the season where not everybody's playing. Everyone's a bit dealing with the Australian Open hangover. She was already starting to flag a little bit that loss, that very close loss to Bianca Andreescu in Miami. Also felt illustrative. I mean, we're talking about Andreescu and Osaka, two people who are, for me, just superior competitors when they're healthy and focused. Um, So going back to Muguruza, I just feel like it's. What's going to make her frustrating for people like us to break her down and analyze is that she just has all the goods. And at any given time, she will continue to be as long as she's healthy and wants to be on the court. She'll always be part of the conversation in one way or another. She's still, you know, she's going to be a high seed coming into this uh, into a tournament, the French Open that she's already won. So I think in that respect, you can't totally ever count her out because she has the experience and she's proven that she can pull it together seemingly out of nowhere, but at least right now, it would be hard to bank on her based off of anything other than just potential and reputation.
0: Yeah, and that's why, again, her playing this week, I think, is so valuable because I just have no idea what her level is at this point. And, you know, again, you mentioned some of the other players playing, Elia Tomjanovic and Meyer Sharif, who's been excellent. I think Parisa's Diaz is one of those sneaky dark horses you could see not making a run to the quarterfinals, but a second week appearance doesn't feel out of the question for her. I mean, I'll always take a little Claire Lou stock and that Lou Sharif match is and will be on my television screen. Um, Yeah, I mean, again... Those are who's playing this week's WTA events. We'll focus on the ATP action happening this week. Now, as you can tell, why we're having these conversations about these WTA events is in the broader context of today's discussion, where we want to break down our dark horses heading into this 2022 French Open in the women's singles draw. And as we did yesterday with David, we want to break it down by category, talk about some top 20 players who we think can win the damn tournament, talk about if we think there will be another quarterfinal surprise, some unseeded players we'll be keeping our eyes on as well. But, you know, before we get into that, I want to talk about what constitutes a dark horse this season. And I do want to defer to yesterday's podcast. We don't have to rehash the entire Igu Fiantech conversation we had. We talked about her 28 straight victories, 37-3 and three overall. She's on that Celis, Navratilova, Graf, Serena, uh, I'm missing one, Pace, um, Everett Pace, you know we, we did all that yesterday my and obviously she is a tier 1 candidate she's the unequivocal favorite to capture the 2022 French Open title and if you want if you don't believe me go and look via the sports books go and look via our friends at DraftKings who as of right now French Open odds for the event 1 week out Iga Swiatek now plus 100 against the field they're not giving you anything they feel like Iga's is a pretty comfortable favorite. After that, you go, you know, all the way to 10 to 1 odds. That's how big they're offering you on Simona Halep. 14 to 1 for Bedosa and Jabour. 16 to 1 for Sakari. Everything after that, 20 to 1 or higher. So they are telling you they think it's Iga, there's a large delta, and then everyone else. Typically here at Cracked Rackets, we like to define our contenders as Tier 1 and Tier 2. Tier 1, you are a favorite, and you... All you If you play well, you will win the event. Tier two means, yeah, some things have to break your way, but you are absolutely in contention to win the title. I suppose my question to you, you know, and everyone beyond that, I suppose, definition-wise speaking, is probably a dark horse. If you're not tier one or two, then you are not considered someone who it is feasible to win the event for. I suppose my question to you, and feel free to, again, dissect the definitions however you'd like. But is there a tier two player as we enter this 2022 French Open? Is there someone definitively above the rest of the field, someone who has played well enough to challenge what we see in Iga Świątek to say, yeah, like there are some tier two caliber players capable of winning this title? Or is everyone but Iga a dark horse at this point?
1: I think there is. And it's ironic that she is this tier two contender, because I think if you looked up dark horse in the dictionary, you would see on Jabor's face, smiling and waving, maybe having just hit a very wacky drop shot or on the run winner that kind of just makes your head explode. But I think at the same time, she's really the only other player that I feel confident even putting in the contender conversation right now. I think you can also make a case perhaps for Arena Sabalenka but I think when we're talking about intangibles and just sort of momentum I think you have to give the edge to Jabor just narrowly behind Iga Sviantek, and that's only because we're talking about a 128 player draw a lot of things can happen Sviantek could lose and Jabor can find herself as the you know most vaunted contender of those remaining and, and at that point I would consider her to be the favorite to win that title maybe some draw uh some draw elements to be determined. But I think just the way that she's been able to string together match wins, the way she's been able to stay healthy, she's confident. She's answered every question we've ever had about her as a player, as a person. Again, she's a former junior French Open champion. I think that this is just the kind of player who she's, this is her moment. And she's been the person to step through the door of late in her career. So I, I wouldn't put it past her to do it again. But even then, there's certainly a great deal of space between her and Chiantic.
0: Onjabur second right now on the WTA Tour and wins with her 25-8 and record. That trails only Iga Svantec with, of course, her 37 victories. You look beyond that, and to your point, the case against Onjabur. Against top 20 players this year, Onjabur 4-5 overall on the year. Against top 10 players, Onjabur 1-4 overall on the year. Now, she's had opportunities, uh, but to your point, it's, again, getting over the hump in those opportunities and for own Jabour over the last 52 weeks, she's been outstanding 53 and 18 overall, 75% win percentage. And, you know, again, during that stretch of time, so what she's played, I think 19, or excuse me, she's played 20 total tournaments over the last 52 weeks. She's made the quarterfinals of 12 of them. Uh, I mean, again, when you're making the quarterfinals or better at 60% of your events and own Jabour being the top 20 player that she is, yeah, she plays some two fifties here and there, but She's playing the highest level events and consistently getting to that quarterfinal round. To your point, she might be the best bet just by virtue of she doesn't really lose to players she's not supposed to lose to anymore. You look at her record against opponents ranked outside the top 20 over the past 52 weeks. She's 42-9 and against those players, but who are those nine losses to, you know, a player like Apollo Bedosa, who's now firmly inside the top 10, a Simona Halep, who I think is getting closer and closer to re-entering uh, the top 10, and players like Jessica Pagula, and you know, uh, I think uh, Yelena Ostapenko, and the wrong sort. when Ostapenko was on one of those tears in Eastbourne, you have to play extraordinarily well to beat Own Shapur right now. And again, I think one of the trademarks of the WTA Tour, this is not a hot take, over the past 18 months has been the inconsistency. You know there are a lot of players who can play extraordinarily well, but who's going to play well in any given week? The standard deviation from the Onchapur floor to ceiling in any match is as small of a delta as you're going to see right now out of anyone not named Iga Sviantek. And that would probably be the case for her to be be in Tier 2. That said, I can't put her there. Because I just—I don't see the world where—and, you know, and, you know, again, Owen Jabeur was nursing a double-digit win streak going into that Rome final. But who did she beat in that double-digit win streak, you know, again, over this stretch of time? Who have been the impressive victories? You know, a good win over Simona Halep, 3-2 in Madrid. I agree, you know, three-set win over Jessica Pagula in Madrid as well. Like, the Soccery three-set win? That had more to do with soccery in my opinion, all due respect, than it did with Jabeur in Rome. And, like— You know, she beats Benchich in Madrid. That's a three-set match as well. I just feel like that's a toss-up. She had a bunch of toss-ups go her way, certainly going into the French Open. But can she win four toss-ups in a row? Like, I don't know if I'm there. I I don't know if she can.
1: I mean, the question is, will she get four toss-ups in a row? I think Ash Barty can talk to you about how— you don't necessarily have to play a lot of top 10 players anymore to win Grand Slams. Hate to say it, but I think with Angebor, I mean, she's beating the players in front of her nowadays and that's not something that she was always able to do. I mean, you talk about that ceiling to floor ratio. The fact that she has become one of the most consistent players is not only a testament to her improvements and the fact that she's been able to shake off, you know, some crappy second sets from her, you know, got bagels twice and to winning Madrid. I mean, that's sort of Angebor in a nutshell, but at the same time, it's also an indictment against the rest of the field who, while they have improved, they've taken a bit of a backslide in this clay court swing. I mean, I think when we were leaving Miami, it felt like we were getting a congealed top tier of players and it, things have gotten a little loose again. I think that's, that's the kind of environment that a player like Onjibor can slip through. I think you're right when she gets up against a top 10 player who's feeling confident. I go back to that Wimbledon match against Arena Sabalenka where it was like Arena took all the air out of the stadium. That's not just because the roof was closed. She just was in a zone and was able to just take the racket out of Jabor's hand. There was no time for gimmicks, no time for silliness. That was it. But I think at the same time, we go into this field and we go into what the draw is potentially going to look like, Jabor might not get that uh, murder murderer's row of, of top flight players, and she may end up leaving this tournament as one of them.
0: Yeah, well, I just... And again, I know it's a separate conversation than contenders for the title. I think she's a top five contender. I would not put her in tier two. I would put Sabalenka in tier two because I think Sabalenka is deserving of being there. And I think she has started to play well enough that her ceiling is high enough to where I have seen her streak together. And again, not past the semifinals, but we saw her catch fire uh, at a couple of Grand Slams last season. And we saw her... You know, seemingly just be able to find her best form in those biggest moments and and again and again she's starting to serve a little bit better. Now, Iga blitzed her, obviously, last week in Rome, but I would put her in tier two because I think she's starting to play better. I just don't think is healthy enough. I don't think Bados is healthy enough. <sighs> You know what? I will put Jabour in tier two because someone else has to be there besides Sabalenka. I don't want to give up the rest of my top five contender list. That is probably the end of my tier two, though. I mean, I think the next closest player who would flirt with that tier, obviously, Simona Halep would be one part of the conversation. But like the next closest might be Amanda Anisimova, who I just don't think we can put there, given, you know, Anisimova right now, 28 in the live rankings. Yeah, she'll be seated, but... Not going to be a top 10 seed. I don't think you can put her firmly in Tier 2. We'll get to her in this Dark Horse conversation momentarily. Are there any other Tier 2 players that I'm missing that you would put in there? Of the
1: top 32 seeds or of the top 10, what are we looking at?
0: You can take whatever you want. Tier 2 is Tier 2.
1: Tier 2. I mean, I would have been more confident about the Halep pick had she not done what she's sort of done the last – couple of matches in Madrid and Rome. I mean, the way that she took out Bedosa, it really felt like she was putting her stamp on this clay court season was a big opportunity for her to rack up a lot of points and sort of assure herself a return to the top 10. We'll still have plenty of opportunities to do that with no points to defend in Roland Garros and Wimbledon. I'm still a bit bearish on Sabalenka. I think maybe part of that is just because I'm still quite traumatized from her semifinal against Layla Fernandez at the US Open. I don't know if I necessarily trust her that late in the tournament when she is the odds on favorite, just on paper to to win that slam. Will she get the job done? And, and it, strangely, if I had to swap in Jabor, I kind of feel like Jabor might have won that title. I think there would have just been just enough... Uh, grist, (laughs) just enough weirdness that she would give uh, those youngsters in Fernandez and Raducanu that maybe she would have come away with that U.S. Open title in Sabalinka's place. And I don't know if I would have said that back in August. But just based on the way that Jabor has handled herself through this clay court season, the fact that she shook off a really injured finish to 2021 is healthy and playing as well as she is. I I, I really do have newfound respect for the Tunisian, who I hope will be headlining the uh, 250 event that's meant to debut later this season in Tunisia. I mean, it's really it's a new day on the WTA calendar. But I think with that said,
0: I would love to have. If I can stop you there, quick tangent, what do you think of the fall calendar?
1: I liked it. I think you could really see the footprints and you could see the fingerprints rather of where the tour is going. With that absence of uh, China cities that used to really clog up the end of the year, we're seeing tournaments in Estonia, <laughs> the Kantavite influence and Kaya Kanepi influence is real. We're seeing that the tournaments in Tunisia, uh, the the Ons fluence, as I tweeted, is very real uh, and very uh, very much alive. And I think we're just seeing tournaments and even in uh, in Poland, you know, with respect to Iga Swiatek, I think we're seeing the WTA tour. And who be, but yeah, but I think when we're looking at the WTA calendar, I think we're seeing the tour go where the players are. And I think that's a great strategy because if you're, I think if you're a young Polish fan, a young Tunisian fan, a young Estonian fan, you're getting into tennis because of the results from your, your country's favorite daughter at this point. I think you then want the opportunity to go to a tournament and see them play. And I don't necessarily think that was the case when they were having to be, uh, confined to your, your Zhengzhou, Wuhan, Beijing, uh. Trifecta, as was becoming the case in 2019. So I think it's a good it's a good strategy on part of the WTA. And I'm, and I'm also very happy to hear and see that there will be a WTA 1000 in Guadalajara. If it wasn't going to be the WTA finals destination for a second straight year, I was really happy to see it kind of earn its place on the WTA calendar in an interesting spot, given that it's going to be after the US Open. A lot of the players will still sort of be in that North American, European region. And maybe gives a bit of a hint as to where the WTA finals will ultimately be. It can't be that far from Mexico if they're going to have a big, tournament in Mexico. And then where are they heading next? Certainly maybe not that far out,
0: far off. I would also add that in that post U S open stretch, it can be hard to entice players to play. And you know, it's a lot harder to turn down an event in your home country in, you know, in front of your home fans to your points. So just getting players to play more down the season's home stretch. Now that's less of an issue. I think uh, certainly given the parody on the WTA tour, you just need those points at the end of the year, but at the same time, to your point, I th- I think it's an excellent strategy, I, I I enjoyed and appreciated the WTA fall schedule. I think it's going there's going to be a sequence of events, including the WTA San Diego. Great to see San Diego, even if not an ATP event this year, keep their professional event license and you know continue to be able to bring pro tennis to that community. That's so important in terms of establishing a fan base moving forward, and so. I was also a fan of that WTA fall schedule. But with that in mind, if those are the parameters for the dark horse, let's start talking about the players we think that can win this tournament. And I ask, as always, two top 20 players, in your opinion, not in your top tier of contenders, who you still think, if things break right, can win the, w- uh, can win the French Open title. Who you got, David? Let's start with player one.
1: You know, you wouldn't expect a top three seed to be considered a dark horse, but I do feel that way about Paola Badosa. I still go back to the way she played in Madrid, getting a good win over Veronica Kudermedova and really played as well as she could have against an on fire Simona Halep in that next match, even though she did end up coming away with the L and had some struggles against Daria Kasakina in Rome, sort of the ideal clay court specialist to run into. I think all Palo has really needed in the last couple of weeks is some time off and she's gotten it this week heading into Roland Garros. I think she's coming in a bit under the radar. There won't necessarily be all of the hype that she would have expected of a top three seed coming into Roland Garros. Maybe not the same media obligations and attention that she would be expecting had she won Madrid or Rome coming into what should be her most successful grand slam of the season. She came dangerously dangerously perilously, agonizingly close to winning Roland Garros last year, losing in the quarterfinals to the aforementioned Tamara Zidancic. A bit of a dig, I feel, that we didn't maybe pay close enough attention to that sun, uh, that golden swing of clay court tournaments that Zidancic, uh proved so successful at managed to take that momentum into the semifinals of Roland Garros. But you look back at how Bedosa played in Paris last year with wins over Marquette of Andrusova, that classic against Anna Bogdan in the third round, was so close to beating Zidancic in the quarters in spite of all of the nerves that she seemed to be dealing with. She's a year more experienced. She's got an amazing game, durable, versatile. If she is fresh and if she's mentally fresh, physically fresh, there's no reason why she can't win the title, but just based off of her results over the last couple of weeks, it would be hard for me to consider her a contender. And the question I guess for her is whether she can shake off her own hardcore hangover and kind of rediscover her most aggressive game on clay because she's going to need it.
0: Yeah. I mean, It's tough to call her a dark horse considering you look right now, Paula Bedosa, who won Indian Wells not that long ago, is number four in the world. That said, particularly here during the clay court season, and Bedosa now down to number eight in the yearly ELO ratings according to Tennis Abstract, which is a measurement of how you're playing in the moment. I mean, throughout this clay court season. Loses to Benchich in three sets in Charleston. You know, gets knocked out by Sabalenka in straights in Stuttgart. Knocked out in Madrid in straights by Halep. Knocked out by Kasatkina in Rome as well. None of those losses in a vacuum are poor. And again, has some good wins. Beat Rabakina and Jabur in Stuttgart. And, you know, got a good win over an informed Kudermatova in uh Madrid. May not have the signature victory, to your point, and has played a ton of tennis over the last 52 weeks. You look for Paula Bedosa, 51-20 and in her last 52 weeks. Again, 71 matches in a uh, 12-month stretch is a lot of tennis on the body. I mean, that said, she's now starting to defend serious points, and it is going to be interesting to see how she responds to that, and she will be a top-four seed, and obviously that helps uh, to a certain extent. I mean, again, from a floor perspective, it's a good pick. I think you have to play a really good match to beat B- Paula Bedosa, even when she's not playing her best tennis. The question is, can't you know, again, I don't think her ceiling is as high as some of the other players who we are seeing put together good weeks right now. Like, I think on the right day, Jill Teichman can and will beat Paula Bedosa. Like, I just think that's that's a good matchup for Teichman, and I worry about those sort of matches right now for Bedosa if she's not at her fittest.
1: I mean, what happens first? Teichman wins or Teichman retires? I feel like we're kind of, it's it's, a fair question.
0: They're both equally likely.
1: It's the kind of thing where I feel like Paolo Bedosa is my odds on contender to win the 2023 French Open. You know, perhaps unless you're in a situation where Shvantec runs the table, wins another seven straight matches on clay and then, you know, runs the table on clay next season as well. But I think with Bedosa, she's just it's hard to call her anything other than a dark horse just given her clay court run. It just hasn't been the same spark that we were really starting to see in Indian Wells and Miami was really close to defending her BNP Paribas Open title. This is a really tight match to Maria Sicari, who played probably her best match of the season and was playing some really great ball in Miami as well before coming down with a bit of a virus, having to retire in the quarters against Jessica Pagula. She was becoming one of those really tough outs in tennis, playing just indomitable, tenacious tennis in both of those tournaments. And and that has been the thing that has been most on display in Stuttgart, Madrid, and to a lesser extent, Rome. We're seeing the tenaciousness, but we haven't necessarily seen everything else needed to kind of string that into some quality wins. She's got some time off. She's going to have every other day with the Grand Slam structure. That should be the kind of thing that you would hope keeps her fresh. She's still mentally, emotionally happy. I would be too if I was dating Juan Betancourt, but I think for Bedosa, there's not much where you feel like, There's a big crash in coming, and I can't even imagine her feeling the kind of pressure that she might have been expecting to feel coming into this tournament had she had the kind of clay court season that many were expecting her to have. I know she dealt with the nerves and the pressure last year, fairly admirably managed to, you know, come away with her first Grand Slam quarterfinal, looking for her to do that again at a big tournament. (sighs) Yeah. Fingers crossed. Cause I feel like she's certainly one of those players who, if she can do it, it would be a real destiny fulfilled moment. It would be kind of a great thing to see.
0: No, I'm looking at this list of players and it's really hard to see a scenario where any of them not named Ego win the title. I mean, Soccery Probably has to go into tier two because of that, just by default, almost. I don't think she qualifies no. for this conversation. See,
1: the thing about Sakari is, I wouldn't consider her a contender until I could see her win a big title. I think Sakari yeah. is probably
0: okay, but if she know, wins one point against Barbara Krachikova, are we not saying that anymore? I mean, I know that's how thin the margins are well, at that level, but like she was that close last year.
1: Yeah, she didn't, and we don't. And I think it's yeah. the kind of it's it's that Mertens Matova conundrum. You're so great and you're so talented and no one has put more effort into physical fitness has really redefined what it means to be an athlete on the WTA tour. And yet it goes to show I would still put Bedosa over Sakari in those situations because I feel like Bedosa just has that natural intangible, that ability to step over the finish line, that match that she played against Vika Azarenka to win Indian Wells. That's one of those watershed moments that Sakari has not had yet. And not only did she have that moment, in Paris against Kretschkova, she had it again at the U.S. Open. It was probably even considered a greater favorite to beat Emma Raducanu. And yet, based off of all of that prior results, I did not think Sakari was going to win that match. And sure enough, she lost it real bad. And it's just one of those things that's hard to recover from. I mean, it's good for Sakari that she's been able to maintain her level. That level to me is still not good enough to win a grand slam.
0: Fair. I have only one player I can think of on this list who honestly may sneak into my tier two and is going to probably be in my top five contenders, but I think probably qualifies as a dark horse considering it's Paris. I'm going to go with Danielle Collins, who now when I say Danielle, all I can see is Dan-Y-E-L-L, like it's spelled by the Twitter sphere now. Come on. Danielle Collins, 41 and 15 overall in her last 52 weeks. Last year... In lieu of playing the Olympics, goes and plays a sequence of clay court events, loses a match to Rusa in the Hamburg quarterfinals, loses a match to Kalnina in the Budapest semifinals, but wins the title in Palermo, goes on to win the title in San Jose. You look for her just this season. Who are the five losses to for Danielle Collins? We well, you throw out the one to Marquette van Drusseva in Dubai, where she had to retire with injury? She loses to Barty in the Australian Open final, Osaka in Miami, Andrescu in Madrid, Anisimova in Rome. On paper, none of those losses sound particularly poor. Now, context being key, she lost to Anisimova 2-2. Two two. She lost to Andrescu 1-1. One and one. She lost to uh, Osaka 2-1. To her credit, when she goes out, she goes out in style. Like, if I'm going to lose, let's freaking lose the match. That said, you know, win healthy. She's got that fu to her, where she's just going to swing through anyone. And obviously, there's not an ounce of fear in anyone, you know, in Danielle Collins stepping out onto the court. She believes she is uh, as good as anyone. She's going to be across the net from. Now, again, has she been the healthiest since the Australian Open? No, she hasn't been. Does she have the most clay court matches under her belt coming into this tournament? No, she's only got four. That said, you look for her at the Grand Slams historically and in the French Open in particular, you know, third round last year, ends up losing a match 4 and 4 to Serena. Year before that, makes the quarterfinals where she beat Muguruza. She beat Ons Jabeur. She beat Clara Tauson coming off of that Tauson victory over Jennifer Brady in round 1 before losing in 3 to Sonya Kennan. I've seen her have success in Paris before. She had a sequence of clay court success last season, so I do think if she's healthy and can get through you know, the, her first two rounds in straight sets, now it's a whole new ballgame. Now she becomes a different caliber of beast, and again, if she's on the opposite side of the draw as Iga Swiatek and she is confident and healthy, and we're at the point where Danielle Collins has reached the quarterfinals of the French Open, are you picking anyone against her? Like I don't know if you can at that point, because if she reaches the quarterfinals, she's proven she's healthy. She's proven she's fit. And at that point, with her weapons, and more importantly, her mindset, like we saw it in Australia, Danielle Collins is a killer. And right now, when you know, there's a lot of bodies wandering amongst the WTA fields. She's happy to snipe them off one by one.
1: I think you asked me a long time ago, and by a long time ago, I mean yesterday, who I yeah. thought would be the American to go the farthest at Roland Garrison. And to my eternal shame and horror, I did not remember Daniel Collins in that conversation. I was thinking of Pagula. I was thinking of Vanessa Mova. But Danielle Collins is the only active player to have made a Grand Slam final this year. And she beat Iga to do it. I mean, so it's a funny thing that she's not being considered a greater favorite. I think there's just something in terms of pedigree, which just seems sort of disrespectful, or pejorative to say about Danielle Collins, that people just do not think of her in the context of her own resume, which at this point is that of a Grand Slam finalist, top 10 player. We just don't think of her that way. But at the same time, to your point, before the Australian Open, the French Open had been her most successful slam. I mean, she got very close to beating Serena Williams, certainly pushing it to three sets in Paris, had the great run in 2020, you know, could have gone either way against uh, Sonia Cannon in that match. Maybe, you know, maybe Collins makes her first slam final there. Things are a little bit different, but I think for Collins, again, if she's healthy, you know, if she's healthy and she's feeling consistent and feeling good about her game, it's true. She could, She's one of those few players who I think – in the absence of Jabor, who I've promoted to contender status, is probably the quintessential dark horse in this field because she's someone who you're not thinking of, who arrives in Paris under the radar, can very easily perhaps win this title, which is yeah. crazy to say, but it's it's true.
0: Yeah, you know, I think she has to be on the short list, and we're going to talk about the Americans more with David Gertler later on this week as well when we focus on the men and the women. But it's hard not to jump on this podcast conversation in this dark horse portion of the show because, I mean- doesn't Amanda Nisimova, who I know isn't, doesn't count as a top 20 player, but I think has to belong in this conversation considering the fact that Anisimova's is 12th in the points race this year, I believe, according to yearly ELO ratings right now, Amanda Nisimova, 5th. She's 20-8 overall on the season. She's made the semifinals of Roland Garros before. You look for her again. I would say just... Throughout the course of her career uh, in clay court matches, she's been pretty exceptional. Twenty nine and seventeen overall, and you know has made multiple semifinals, quarterfinals, won that title in Bogota back in twenty nineteen. Clay courts have always been kind to Amanda Nisimova. You look for her at the grand slams over the past couple of, uh, you know, past couple of slams, obviously fourth round in Australia where she beats Osaka and Benchich, you know, played a fantastic match against a very informed Wimbledon finalist, Carolina Pliskova in the second round of the U.S. Open last year. And, you know... 2020 Roland Garros, she makes the third round before losing to Halep. Last year was a first-round loss for her to Matova, but obviously that was a different Anisimova. You just look for her Roland Garros appearances. You know, semifinals 2019, third round 2020. Obviously, last year's the exception, not the rule, but I think last year's the exception, not the rule, and she's going to be seeded this year. And just like, I think she's going to hold seed at a minimum, get to that third round, and again... If it's bedosa Anisimova, round three, David, who are you picking in that match? I think I'm picking Anisimova, and I think she could win this damn event.
1: Yeah, I would also pick Anisimova. I mean, it's, it's a great contrast because I think where Bedosa is a great contender, perhaps for next year's French Open, I think Anisimova, Jabor, and Shvantec are all very much ready now and yeah, so I she's think-
0: playing so well right now. To your point, also, so she's confident. She's you know, unlike the first half of this conversation where we talked, Pliskova needs matches, Mertens needs matches, Muguruza needs matches. Anisimova does not need matches. She's ready.
1: No, and it's a field where you look at everyone kind of in between the top seeds and Anisimova, and there are yes. very few where I would think oh, she definitely has no chance to beat them, particularly on the upper end of that seeding list. I mean, I think the, the real tragedy would potentially be if we get that third round between Anisimova and Svantek. I mean, that would probably be the popcorn match of the first week. And now we it feels really,
0: guaranteed. You just insured yeah. it.
1: I mean, I just said it, so I hope it happens. But. I'm writing
0: down the clip, by the way, for when it does happen, so we can cut that, but go and ahead.
1: Roll it, roll it out, yeah. yeah. And, and then I would pick Amanda to win it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would predict a six-all in the third set if that ends up happening. But, um, yeah, I think Anna it's one of those – she's one of those players where she feels ripe, and it feels like it's got to happen now. She certainly needs to end this season, 2022, with another signature grand slam result it's been too long and she's too talented to not have another grand slam quarterfinal semifinal on her resume since 2019 and if it's going to happen it feels like it's certainly going to happen now she's confident if the worst thing you could say about her clay court swing is that she lost to Sabalenka for the first time in five attempts that's not that bad um and she's someone who again has proven bona fides in Paris you know destroyed uh Simona Halep, which is certainly not a bad thing to have on your calling card. I mean, that's how Igish Shvantech launched her own career the following year, destroying Halep and then making the making the final and then winning the title <laughs> in, in Roland Garros. So, yeah, she certainly uh, she feels like she's ranked lower than she really is. Right. than she should be right now.
0: She's two and she went two and five last year between the start of the French Open and the start of her run to the Montreal round of 16. She has nothing to defend over the next couple of months. She's already number 28 in the world. Her career high is number 21. If Amanda Nisimova does not reach new career high at the end of this season, something went horribly wrong because she should blitz by that and she should be in the top 20 going into next season. Now, I don't think I need to see another Grand Slam semifinal out of her this year. I would like to see her make a second week. Absolutely. And I would like to see her make a second week Holding seed at the U.S. Open. Like, she should be top 16, it feels like, going into New York and be one of the players who we're not talking about in the dark horses, who we could be talking about just openly as a contender. And that's crazy to say because she doesn't turn 21 until the end of August. And, you know, shout out to the Miami nightclub scene, I suppose, with that fact in mind. But, I mean, just on, like, she is still extraordinarily young. You look for her in her career at the tour level. I mean, again, Dan, uh, excuse me, Amanda Nisimova in her career. Wow. You want to hear something shocking? How many career matches, and again, not even 21 years old, how many career WTA-level matches do you think she's played? Oh, boy. (sighs) Um,
1: um, It's tough.
0: 90? 146. That's way more than I expected. I agree. Like that was—that's a surprising number to me, especially why, given the
1: time off and the pandemic.
0: Yeah. And that's why it feels like we're ready for her to pop off right away. But let's not forget she's still just twenty-one years old, and I do think physically, God, every half second of speed Amanda Nisimova adds to her movement around the court, add five—you know—subtract five rankings from her ceiling, like height, or like uh, add two more titles to her ceiling because she has the power it's so easy I mean again her ability to absorb on the backhand wing is laughable the serve can be elite of the elite she's playing that well right now and again if you're the top 10 seed that gets a as your third round match you are just I really hope it's not Sapalanka more than anything else like. oh my god that would be <laughs> I, the worst. like I don't need to see that again yeah like I do need to see it again, but not in the third round. In the Um, immortal
1: words of Lisa Kutcher on the comeback, after a long day of work, I don't need to see that.
0: Yeah, well said. You took the words out of my mouth. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think Anisimova, I would put her in this list because honest to God, like, uh, let's just go through it real quick. Let's just play this game. Anisimova or Kanteve? Who's more likely to win the title? Anisimova. I agree. Anisimova or Pliskova? Anisimova. I agree. Anisimova over Muguruza? Anisimova. <laughs> I agree. Anisimova Pagula?
1: Anisimova.
0: I think I agree. Anisimova Radakanu. Raducanu?
1: Anisimova. I think this is where we're getting to the point where like that 11 through 20 range is yeah. just – it should be one-way traffic for Amanda. If she doesn't end the season at least ranked 12th, 11th, 12th, and at least one Grand Slam quarterfinal, I think, as young as she is – you would kind of consider this season a disappointment just with the amount of results that she's been able to put together. Because looking at everyone south of Pagula, perhaps other than Hallep, you know, which is based on reputation and no. potential, I think,
0: I mean, I I'm wouldn't I'm very put her- happy you said that. Because yeah. let's go through that next list here. And I know we're going name by name, but welcome to the Great Shot Power Many Break podcast, folks. This is what we do here at Cracked Rackets. And David keeps volunteering for some reason. Yelena Ostapenko. She's not playing well enough right now, but that one's interesting.
1: Is it? I mean, I was feeling so good about Aljona Ostapenko in the Middle East when she played that match against Garbini Muguruza and hit, I don't know, 100 winners in five minutes or something like that. I forget the. I'm not the math guy. I'm not the numbers guy. And hasn't won a match since. I mean, it has just been brutal. I mean, this was teed up to be Yelena Ostapenko's return to the top 10. And granted, she did end up playing Shelby Rogers one too many times during the Sunshine Swing, but has not won a match since. I mean, that is brutal. I mean, and you just look at Ostapenko, I could so easily see her losing in the first round to pretty much anyone. I mean, yes, she can win the title. Yes, she has a high ceiling, but her floor is so low. And she's it's just, a little daniel so unfortunate.
0: She's a little danielle ish in that if she's in the quarterfinals, now you're like, well, that means we got to go to Yelena Ostapenko week. Yes. At the same time, you're like, but is this the end of the week? Like, is this the match six is too much, ma- a bridge too far? Like, you are always concerned about that. I would agree with your assessment, though. It's an interesting one. Vika, when she's been healthy, she's been excellent. She's just like not been healthy. And to bet on her to be healthy for two weeks is a tough bet to make. I'm always on the Rabakina bandwagon. We don't have to do that again because God knows we've had that argument enough. But, I mean, what's the bad loss for Rabakina over the past stretch of time? Like, you look at what she's been able to do. All right. I'm sorry. We're doing it right now. They're they're just the two other names and the ones I think are most interesting. So, for Rabakina on clay, Loses to Kalnina and Charleston, but that's not real clay. Loses to Bedosa and Stuttgart 7-6 in the third. Loses twice to Teichman, first time in straight sets, second time in three sets. Robocan was what, a quarterfinalist, I believe, here at this event last season. Again, her power tennis. She's named number one. The other one I have to throw out there, and I know it's not her surface du jour, but Belinda Bencic, who's just like playing really well right now, and in my opinion, playing the best. You know, tennis of her career, 25 years old, losses on the clay, round of 16, three-set loss in Madrid to Jabour. you know, straight-set loss at rope, six-and-one, though, to Anisimova. She wins that first set. Maybe it's a different ball game. I think, actually, Bencic is the one who's quietly played the best tennis, really, since that Olympic run. She's managed to capture that momentum, sustain it. She's just been healthy for 12 months consecutively, 18 months even, for the first time, seemingly, in her career. Of all of the other players that we had, you know, and we've talked about a lot here now, Collins would be my number one pick here. I actually would throw Benchich in that number two spot. And I know that's a lot to say on red. Cl- well, I'd throw Nisa Mova in that two spot. But then I'd throw Benchich in that three. Because I do think she has played extraordinarily consistently, and again, if you have any doubt in your mind, she's just going to kill you because Bencic has one speed, and that speed is attack, 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 and when she's as confident as she is and as fit as she has been since her first injury back at 17 years old... I just I'm a believer right now. And, you know, the numbers back it up for Benchich career high hold percentage career, you know, above her career average in the break percentage. We don't have to do the full stat breakdown here. But I'm curious if you feel that way about her also, because I have seen it of late with her like I like in, in the best way possible.
1: Yeah, I don't. (laughs) I think especially with red clay, I think if you're Benches, you're looking to maintain this form onto grass and hard courts because I think that's ultimately where she has her best chance. I don't think she necessarily wants to kill herself to make the third or fourth round of Roland Garros and then be injured and not be able to play on grass or the bulk of the hard court season. I think it's sort of an unsexy pick, but I think I would still put Simona Halep, you know, in that conversation above benches just based on what she's been able to do. Just sort of the new you know, new and improved, refreshed mindset. She's still healthy and, you know, adjusting to this relationship with Patrick Moratoglu and sort of being in the the Moratoglu cinematic universe and having everything um, managed by Moratoglu and co. I mean, after a lot of years doing things differently, I think this is a lot of change for Simona, but at the same time, she's very determined and she has been repeatedly doggedly determined to reclaim her space amongst the world's top 10. And based on who's in front of her, there's no reason why she can't do it. And I think this is a big opportunity for her to really, you know, put her stamp on as the tour's elder stateswoman, which is brutal to say because Simone and I are the same age within two months of one another. So for her to be the elder stateswoman is, it's rough for me. But my, I should post my Venmo at the end of this, uh, <laughs> at the end of this podcast for my pain and suffering. But I think yeah. for Simona, I mean, it's, it's Simona, it's Paris. I think you have to put her in the conversation because this is someone who's made multiple finals, has won the title, has certainly been one of the odds on favorites to win it every time she's been in the draw since probably 2014, um, certainly over Benchich. Mm, you know, with Collins and with uh, Anisimova being in the mix, obviously Anisimova's beaten uh, Simona here. Simona's gotten the, the revenge win over Anisimova the following year. Halep has the experience and I do tend to give the nod to experience. There just isn't a lot of players with that kind of experience in the field anymore. I mean, just, you know, given that Serena, Venus, Sharapova have all, you know, either exited or are taking breaks from the game, you don't have those go-to players. And we're looking for, you know, Iga Svantec at 14 years old, it feels like to be the the most experienced player left in the game. But I think for Halep, this is a big opportunity for her to kind of reestablish herself and I do hope she does it.
0: Yeah. By the way, do you have a birthday sibling on tour, someone with your exact birthday, whether it be year and or date that you, uh, you know, for me, it's Juan Pablo Varias, who I know you know well, October 6th, 1995. He's so close to the top 100, so close. He's been hovering at like 104 for the past like nine months. And I think he's going to get French Open main draw or be close to it. That's my birthday brother. So if he succeeds, I succeed. He's the one who I'm like, all right, we cracked the top 100. It's time to make our next move from the podcasting front because, you know, JPV did his thing. Is there someone like that for you?
1: She's not active, but there is someone who was born on November 22nd who's quite famous, if you can, if you know that. I'll tell you in a second
0: you know I usually when I think by celebrity I think by their birthday so uh, that's a good hint who's in November 22nd Lisa Kudrow because you mentioned her earlier
1: no no I mean in tennis
0: oh she's not active on tour but she is quite famous okay Amelie Moresmo.
1: very close in a way but no the correct answer is WTA founder Billie Jean King. Oh, that's Which, yeah, I, I mean, should. talk about born on the fourth of July. Born yeah. on the same day as Billy Jean King explains everything. So I let's mean, growing a, up.
0: <laughs> again, Westhoff, post a Twitter poll. Who would you rather have as your birthday sibling, Billy Jean King or Juan Pablo Varias? Because we'll put that up to the people. And I, I mean, think I, the people are gonna back me here.
1: Yeah, I feel like I got an edge though. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it'll
0: be close. Um no, I mean again. Uh, Halep's a good pick I want to talk about her in the contenders podcast that we do so I'll save my thoughts Ah. for there but I think she has to be uh, certainly a part of this conversation as we approach the Fortnite in Roland Garros all right let's move beyond uh, this caliber of player and I know we've talked about someone outside the top 25 in Amanda Nisimova but if you're looking for a quarterfinal surprise David who you got for us
1: I mean, we already discussed Elena Rybakina. I think it's only fair that we discuss her uh, her hard-hitting sister, LaMilla Samsonova. I well, by just-
0: the way, I forgot to offer you an update. In terms of Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club, obviously Rybakina was a first ballot invitee. She's on in the queue. like They're having her go through all the initiation stuff just in case she does get that slam. Anissa Mova, ditto. Samsonova has been parking cars for a couple of months now. I think we all look at Benchich in in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club and we go, well, you're not exactly what we're looking for, but the way you strike the ball is intriguing. Like, they're like, you have the attitude of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, even if you don't quite have the weapons. And so we're going to hang with you and just, you're going to stick around here. Like, that's our approach to Benchich.
1: That's very. It's an apt description of Belinda mentioned. Even if I don't think you intended it to be, she has the attitude of a much better player, <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps not necessarily all of the the game and weaponry to to match yeah. up to that self belief. But I think when you compare Samsonova to Reba, I think at this stage, I might be inclined to give the edge to Samsonova just based off of potential oh, and the fact that talking. We've seen Rabakina in the later stages of Grand Slams. And yes, we haven't seen her in that many, but I think the quarterfinal against Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova was instructive in the sense that she just didn't, you would think for a player with seemingly no emotions on court, whether it was the loss to Pavlyuchenkova, the loss to Sabalenka at Wimbledon, these were two tight matches where you would expect Rabakina to be the steely competitor that she presents herself to be. You know, lose it and not and not make it over the finish line in these matches, whereas we have not seen Samsonova in these um whereas we have not seen Samsonova in these matches just yet. And because of that, I'm very curious to see whether she can do it. Certainly based on her game, I feel like she can, but I I would have felt the same way about Rik- Rabakina a year ago and I hadn't seen her done it, do it yet. So I think for Samsonova, I'm really curious to see her in these late-stage matches serving as that foil to your contenders. And can those contenders really prove themselves with a the win over the one and only Ludmilla Samsonova?
0: There are times when Rebakina hits a cross-court forehand winner where my jaw just drops. I'm just like, yeah, you're better at this than everyone else. Like, it just I'm gonna hold on to this stock, and I'm it's gonna appreciate with time. Um, I disagree. I think Rebacon is the more dynamic athlete. I think she's a better mover. I think her serve is better. I think she it remains perennially dangerous, and we saw that at the Slams various points last season. Now, how healthy is she coming into this? I don't know. That said, I don't disagree with your Samsonova pick. I think Ludmilla Samsonova has that sort of power that she can hit through anyone, and so she will be a fascinating character. You know, we talked about Kudermatova a couple of weeks ago, third round, just like Pencil are in. I don't that's not a dark horse, but just by virtue of getting there, you like it in the mix. I mean, I was so ready to do a whole Von Drusova take. I'm so sad she's injured. Where are you with Angelina Kalnina?
1: I think about where we started with Angelina Kalanina. I mean, I think I still don't feel that she has it just yet. I mean, there's certainly a lot of goodwill behind her coming from Ukraine and, you know, having a lot of natural ability, a lot of talent and has pushed a lot of top players to three sets. It's gotten some wins over a couple of them to a certain degree, but I don't think she's really one where it's that that sort of that difference between can I see her making a surprise quarterfinal or could I see her making a surprise fourth round? And that feels a bit arbitrary. We're talking about one match, but there is something that feels different about someone making a grand slam quarterfinal versus someone having a big win in the third round perhaps and making the second week. And then, you know, bowing out at that point. So I think she's one of those players where if she were to make a surprise fourth round, I would feel like, yeah, it's good, good progress for Kalina and how can she take that, you know, into the grass and hard courts where she is a runner up junior U S open finalist in 2014 to Marie Buzkova, which I would consider to be a pretty decent win or, or loss at this point. I think you, you, you dragged somebody for losing to Buscava Madrid. I forget who, but I, I it, wouldn't have considered I, that a bad loss.
0: Well, I think it was not Muguruza who was. It was so early on in this podcast. I don't even freaking remember. I apologize. Yeah, Somebody I was beat like, someone excuse in you. Sets. No, but it was four and two, which is why you just feel like that caliber of player. Oh, it was tris- there. there it is. Thank you. Um And it's just the weapons. It's like you can't beat a Buskova. What happens when someone can stretch you a little bit more if you're Pliskova? I mean, you look for Kalnina. Has she ever advanced past the second round of a Grand Slam? No, she has not. How many main draws has she played at Grand Slams in her career? She's played five main draws in her career. That said, I still think... You know, Again, what she's been able to do over the last 52 weeks, 43-19 and 19 overall physically, she's just a nightmare. She puts a million balls in play. She puts so all sorts of pressure on you, and we talk about the lack of confidence right now for many of the top seeds. She does not lack confidence. She does not lack match toughness. She is as fit as you're going to find. Now, again, the serve is very attackable, but she's going to put all sorts of pressure on you on the return of serve, and you look right now for Kalanina, again, amongst top 52 players right now in the world, Angelina Kalanina uh, amongst top 52, excuse me, amongst top 50 players in the world right now. Kalanina, you know, is a top uh, top 15 in in break percentage. She just puts a million returns in play. She's going to make you uncomfortable. Again, Dark Horse meeting surprise quarterfinal round, that's probably the ceiling of as far as she can go because at that point, you imagine someone with bigger weapons is playing well, will probably hit her off the court. That said, she's that sort of first, second round nightmare for a Muguruza or, you know, again, an Ostapenko, one of those players who are lacking match confidence right now where she could just knock someone out early. I think she's one you have to circle early in the event. I mean, Sariba's Tormo just because of what she does to you physically, is the perennial dark horse nightmare. I don't have a big thought on Parisa's Diaz. I would just point out she's third right now in break percentage amongst top 50 players and we are on clay courts and breaking serve is half the battle and she does it about half the time. Now, the serve's been an issue for her. She doesn't have the biggest weapons, but there's a lot of Kalanina description in Parisa's Diaz as well. I mean, again, do I think any of those players are going to make the quarterfinals? That's probably the ceiling for how far any of them can go. I think those are just the nightmare week one matches.
1: Who is more likely to make the French Open quarterfinal, Nuria Parises diaz or reigning U.S. Open champion Emma
0: Raducanu? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> the, the British press by, might be
1: so mad at you.
0: Raducanu <laughs> just by virtue of the draw. Just because Parizas-Diaz could have to play three seeds on her way to the quarterfinals or whatever it may be. Raducanu may not have to face that just by virtue of being a seed. Who's playing better? Entering the 2022 French Open, I think, is Paris's Diaz, particularly on clay, but that would be a draw. That would The reason I would say Raducanu is because of the draw.
1: That's sort of the brutal thing about these previews, that I don't know yeah. who sets these up, that we're having these conversations before the draw is set up, but I would personally You know who sets
0: it up? The NCAA committee, by putting the tournament this same week.
1: Yeah, but at that point, I think I would be prioritizing accordingly, but that's me. That's why it's not my podcast. I am that's prioritizing. I, that's why I'm the
0: co-host. That's what this is. This is prioritizing so I can do both. Anyways, <laughs> leave it in, West Off.
1: Yes, I think, um, yeah, I would love to see a lot of these players where they are in the draw. Because again, to your point, if we get a, an Anisimova bedosa projected third round draw, then all of a sudden my dark, my dark horse picks go completely out the window where I feel like it's definitely um, –
0: Yeah, a little little bit bit harder. A little little different at that point to
1: pick who who of them is more likely to win the title. But I think, yeah, yeah, I think it's true. I mean, granted, Emma Raducanu had a has had a stabilizing clay court swing, and maybe I shouldn't be so down on on our on our reigning U.S. Open champ. But still, I think just based on the way things tend to shake out on these these uh, tours, I would be. Very unshocked to be reading and perhaps even writing the Nuria Parizas-Diaz, you know, uh, puff piece when she makes the quarterfinals. And Emirata Khan was reading it, you know, on the plane back
0: to the U.K. Parizas-Diaz. Or the Traviz- train. <laughs> Trevisan with better press. Like, is that what we're saying about Parizas-Diaz moving forward if she gets the DK piece? But with that in mind, can we do what we did on the men's side? And I just throw some names at you and we see how you react. Yes. Yeah. I'm ready. Yeah, this time you are ready. Um. All right. Here we go. Potensiva. Is
1: she a dark horse? What is? Wait, wait what are the parameters? Where,
0: where, where are we saying? Now staying? we're at unseated player that can make the second week. Oh, Potensiva? Yes. A strong dark horse or just because? Well, it is
1: an even year, and so she is scheduled to make a Grand Slam <laughs> quarterfinal at some point because she has done it every even year since 2016, and two of them have been at Roland Garros, and she was never forget within five points Never. of defeating your very own Serena Williams in the quarterfinals of the French Open and, and tends to get on a roll at some, some of these Grand Slams where she could just reel off, you know, three or four straight set wins in a row, find herself in a grand slam quarterfinal. And then at that point, it'll be her fourth, you know, maybe experience helps her deal with the, the nerves a bit better. She gets maybe a struggling opponent, you know, to quote Sloan Stevens in Cincinnati a couple of years ago, if it's not one scam, it's another. I think you know that you never want to see Yulia Potensiva on the other side of the net. That's always an advantage that she carries into these matches, despite maybe lacking sort of the physical presence that you would expect of an elite athlete of Garby Muguruza's stature, for example. But absolutely, I feel like she's had a solid enough swing where I feel like I would not be surprised to see Yulia Potensiva in the second week.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you there. Um, Kami Osorio?
1: I wish I could say yes, but I don't think I can because we've just seen so precious little of Kami Osorio the last couple of weeks. I mean, the, the match against Victoria Azarenka, you look at that match in a vacuum and you feel like, oh, that's a match Kami really should win, especially on clay. And she didn't get it done. So I feel like that's sort of instructive as to where I'm going to see her in Paris. I mean, she's one of those players who, again, you don't really want to see a cross in it because she's, she makes it so physical and she gets every ball back and and can Pull off some pretty interesting winners at the end of these 42, 43 shot rallies. So you can't even count her out in terms of a power player perspective. She is capable of, of shot making, I guess I should say, if not power play, maybe shot making ability. But unfortunately, I don't think she has the uh, the, the match toughness right now to really make a deep run in Paris.
0: Kai Yvonne.
1: And I feel like Yvonne is always like, she's just like perennially recovering from COVID. It feels she's like she's bad, just like. 0.9. Yeah, there's just something just that X factor where I feel like is still missing from Juventus or even like you, you, you compare her to a player like Iga Svantec, just one of those preternaturally intelligent young players. You kind of expect someone with that kind of tennis intellectual IQ to, you know, make a big splash. It still hasn't happened yet. I don't know if she has the signature mm-hmm. really anything in her game to kind of gain that just yet.
0: Fair four more for you. And then I promise I'll let you go. Elena Gabriela Russa.
1: God, another player that i had yeah i haven't really thought about her either since that um that weird um derby with yeah. uh, daniel collins last summer where they even got into i think a bit of a beef at one of those tournaments because i think during the the uh the trophy ceremony uh <laughs> Ruza, like apologized for getting and that into was it with the
0: Rusa run she was really good during that stretch as well
1: i mean she's very talented she's and she's very good on clay so you certainly wouldn't want to necessarily draw her as a second first second round opponent but um nothing necessarily about her last couple of weeks makes me think oh she's one that i'm looking for
0: yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, again, beyond that, Kostyuk, we have to – I can't let you – we have to talk about her before every Grand Slam. It's a rule. Fourth round, I mean, she's been here before.
1: It's funny because I was just thinking of a player that we haven't mentioned, which is Bianca Andreescu. I feel like so at this point – That was last.
0: Don't, don't – that's my last. We're saving the best ah, for Yeah, don't I, step on it yet. Don't step on it yet.
1: Because I feel like Marta is very much that sort of – that BB mentality of someone who yeah. just gives no Fs, I wonder how much mental energy she has left in the tank, because it feels like she's been on an 11 just mentally with everything that's been going on, quite understandably, at home in Ukraine. And I wonder if maybe she's potentially feeling a bit gassed at this point heading into Paris, where she will be defending a lot of points. She had a very interesting quote that she uh, cited with her mother last year, where she said, you don't have to think about defending points. You only want to achieve reasonable results because you want to be able to achieve something that you can defend the following year. And so she made the fourth round, I believe, right last year yep. Um. and played a solid enough match against Ika Fountek uh, in the fourth round and, and had a good win against um, Garbini Magruza early in the tournament. That's right. Yes. So I think, listen, she's certainly capable of making the fourth round of a grandson. That's certainly a defendable result for Marta Kostic, but I think it will be a bit draw dependent for her in terms of what she can do.
0: Yeah. It, again, going to be very, very thoughtful. Well then, I mean, the other one I was going to say, Beatrice Haddad Maya. Like, I feel like she can always sneak her way into the fourth round, but let's do Bebe quickly. Do you see enough? Again, physically, can I don't think she can win seven matches. But could she put together a really fun four? I could see that.
1: I don't know. I mean, I think I can see her win seven matches in a row. I mean, we've seen her do it. We've seen her come back from nowhere and win seven yeah. matches in a row. I mean, so I, I think really for her, she has that ability to just get on a roll. It hasn't happened basically since the 2019 U.S. Open. We, but we saw her come back out of nowhere to start the year that she did in 2019, making, um, winning the Indian Wells tournament, coming back pretty much out of nowhere to win Canada, to win the U.S. Open. I think Clay is a really underrated surface for Bianca. I mean, talk about what Tamara Zdancic did in terms of killing dreams. I think a lot of people were looking at what Bianca could have done last year in Paris, loses that really tough match to Tamara in the first round you know provided she doesn't get someone like that again in the first round i think she can she's someone who can get on a roll and someone who will benefit from the day off structure i mean she'll get that time to kind of collect herself refresh and and make it back and she's someone who loves the spotlight who has that marta kostyuk main character energy that we like to discuss yeah. on this podcast and obviously has quite a bit more weaponry and physicality to back that up. So she's certainly one who I would consider to be in that upper dark horse conversation. Just again, that's also based a bit on potential momentum, but the way that she was able to push Ike Svantec in the first set of their, of their quarterfinal in Rome makes you feel like she's, there's still something there and I'm curious to see when it comes out.
0: Her on the slide, everything is just special. I mean, she's going to be a good clay court player. It's just how healthy is she. And again, I do think if she can get Iga early in the tournament, having just seen Iga, boy, would that be a fun rematch. But I think Andrescu has to be considered a dark horse. She's just, her ceiling is still as high as all the ceilings out there. And yeah, if she can find her rhythm, she can find her footing. You know, again, she beat Zidancic last year. Everyone's like, oh, that first round loss was terrible. Well, Zidancic went on to the semifinals. So obviously that one aged with, uh, appreciated with time as well. It's going to be really exciting. I'm excited for the action in Paris as always. Another Grand Slam. Not entirely sure what's going to happen. Yes, Iga is the definitive front runner, but beyond that, plenty for us to learn. And of course, we will break it down. We will continue to try to break it all down, preview it for all of you listeners over the next couple of days as we try to get you prepared for the year's second Grand Slam. Now we talked about this yesterday as well, but maybe a day later, you can now confirm what you would be waiting for from you, David, and the Tennis.com crew.
1: Nothing yet. I'm and still off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like to hear. But obviously, I'm sure they're rocking and rolling uh, already. And obviously, you can read all of David's work throughout the course of the French Open on tennis.com. You can find him at DKTNNS on Twitter, of course, for all of our coverage of the French Open. Head on over to our website, crackrackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to all of the podcasts. Share them with your friends. A shout out, of course, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, for the f- of an ending job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible shout out as well to our friends at tennis point tennis dash point.com that promo code is cr15 with all of that said again more podcasts still to come throughout the course of the week but for the fantastic david kane our super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin david what do we tell our listeners
1: et ça c'est le break
0: <laughs> merci <laughs> ma'am mon ami and we will see you all tomorrow Thanks, everyone. Au revoir.